for the week of August 30th, 2013. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, and uh, looky here, the gang's all here this week. Also in D.C., returned from vacation is Catherine Hamilton, the founder of 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hey, boy, am I glad to be back here after spending some time at a pastoral off-grid cabin. Yes, are you now returning to the bowels of D.C. with renewed vigor and personal insights on how to fix our broken political system? (laughs) Right, I had my entire memory erased. (laughs) And in New York City is energy futurist and author of the upcoming book, Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger Shah, how are you? Fantastic. It's great to be back. I don't think I've ever heard of you taking a vacation, though. You're just always at conferences. (laughs) Well, this one, I was really on on vacation, and and my cell phone didn't really work, which was fantastic. Good, good. And uh, special day today. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Did you know that uh, you share a birthday with Skype? Here we are all talking on Skype. I just found this out right before we started recording. Today is the 10th birthday of Skype. Wow. No, so, I didn't. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, I'm, it's like that's good company. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So the band is back together. Plus one joining us to start the show this week in Boston is Rob Day, a partner at the investment firm Black Coral Capital and author of the Clean Tech Investing blog at Green Tech Media. Hey, Rob. Welcome. Hey there. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'm just realizing now that we're talking that you kind of helped us cover the whole major Northeast and Mid-Atlantic metropolitan areas. So we've got D.C., New York, and Boston. We're all covered. All right. Excellent. Nice. Glad to complete the set. So a good back-to-school lineup this week after uh, some spotty recording here. Let's hear about the lineup. First, we're going to talk about what's coming next in clean tech venture capital and early-stage investments. And this is why we brought Rob on the show in the first quarter of this year, cleantech venture investments dropped by double digits compared to 2012, and we'll, get, we'll look at why and what comes next. So Rob and Jigger are our investment experts here today, so we're going to look forward to a spirited dialogue from them. And then lots of news on the nuclear front in the U.S. and elsewhere, including the announced shutdown of the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant this week. And that's the fifth plant this year to uh, set to be closed. So we'll discuss the implications of recent plant decommissioning and what it says about the changing energy markets. And finally, while we were on vacation, Congress was on vacation, but still a lot happened on the climate and energy front. And we'll talk about mostly everything you need to know as we head into the fall and things pick back up. And then, of course, we'll tell you something you may not know to round out the show. Okay, first up, where is the money going in clean tech? Or uh, more accurately, where should it go? Uh, so Rob Day is helping Green Tech Media organize this event in Menlo Park, uh, California, on September 12th called Next Wave Green Tech Investing, where we've got all kinds of investors, entrepreneurs, and, and limited partners that are going to flesh out this concept of next wave investing, which, is, which Rob has been writing about a lot. Rob, what do you mean when we use this term next wave, and how does it differ from the previous, the first wave of clean tech investment in venture capital? Um, I think about the last wave of green tech investing as having been fairly homogenous, and you know, it really had one basic recipe. It was go find uh, proprietary technology, um, throw lots of money at developing it, um, and uh, you know, the theory is we'll end up being able to make something that changes the world and also makes tremendous venture capital type returns. Uh, and 
there have been absolutely some examples of that working, but if you look at the overall performance of green tech venture capital over that period, it's been underwhelming. So what's happened is naturally people have just generally pulled back from the sector. And what, what are those time. benchmarks that you're looking for exactly? Give us a gauge. Yeah, so uh, venture capital as an overall category has underperformed. It's supposed to be high risk, but therefore high reward. Uh, and so typically, you know, if you're looking at a venture capital investment um, as a limited partner, you're really hoping to see something that gets you into uh, the high teens IRRs or into the 20s IRRs. Uh, when times have been good, it's been really, really good in venture capital and exceeded that. Um, and over the past decade, venture capital as an asset category has been just high single digits. Even versus that, you know, pretty low benchmark, uh, green tech venture capital has produced even lower returns. So a uh, recent analysis from Cambridge Associates showed that the sector had uh, basically done about half of that, um, sort of very mid-single digits type returns. And in some of the major subcategories, um, such as upstream solar production and things like that, the returns have been practically zero. So what are we looking at now? How is this changing? What kind of new investments are you seeing? What new strategies are you seeing from the VC community and from other early stage investors? Yeah, that's right. And that's really what this event is about. It's about saying to the world, okay, in the meantime, while everybody's been pulling back, there's been a lot of really innovative thinking happening amongst investors. And it doesn't all look the same, by the way. It's not homogenous anymore. And so at this event, what we're going to do is we're going to provide a platform for a lot of innovative investors and entrepreneurs to step up and say, here's what we're doing, here's how it's different, and here's how it's working. Because now we're able to start seeing some of the early results out of this. I think over the next 18 months, we're going to see a lot more evidence uh, supporting that some of these investment strategies are working. And, and they run the gamut. I mean, we're seeing folks who continue to work on really deep technology innovation, but they're being much more pragmatic about it. They're figuring out how they can uh, get the development of the technology to happen with a lot less capital. Um, they're figuring out how they can use strategic partnerships to accelerate getting um, getting these uh, products and technologies into commercialization, um, rather than everything having to be funded through venture capital and we're just going to spring it upon the world, you know, wholly baked and, and have a miraculous IPO at the end of it. Um, and in the meantime, you've got investors like us at Black Coral who are starting to focus more on things like downstream business model innovation because I happen to believe that the last 10 years of clean tech venture capital we're actually highly successful, not necessarily for the limited partners who put the money into it, like I described earlier, but certainly in terms of bringing a lot of great thinkers into the market and, and absolutely in terms of getting a lot of these technologies now ready for prime time. And there's almost a backlog of ready-for-the-marketplace technologies that are cost-effective, perform well, they're solving real pain points, and yet we haven't seen the adoption like one would expect given the economic value propositions. So, so Jigger, this sounds a lot about this sounds a lot like what you've been talking about in recent years. What's your take on this? I mean, w one of your roles after leaving uh, and founding Sun Edison and then going to the Carbon War Room was becoming a partner at an early stage investment firm. And uh, you know, it sounds somewhat similar to to the thesis at that firm. W what's your approach to supporting companies, and what have you learned from your different experiences, say from Sun Edison and and the Carbon War Room? Well, look, I mean, I think that um, you're not going to get a lot of disagreement from me. I mean, Rob and I, I think, are completely zapatico in terms of our way of looking at things. I think the big disagreement here in the marketplace, which you guys are going to have to talk about at Next Wave, is 
that you know people like Chamath, for instance, at Social Plus Capital or Vinod Kosla or others are still espousing this notion that technology will save the world. And in infrastructure, which is really what we work in, and I hate, I love the fact that you know that everyone wants to call it something else, but infrastructure is what we are. Um, you know the technologies that we can support at billion-dollar scale really require um, 10 years of track record. And if you don't have 10 years of track record of that technology, you really just can't get the comfort for banks and others. And so I agree completely that this game is all about business model innovation and financial innovation. It's not about venture capital-backed technology innovation. All right, so help me understand what this means for actual structure of deals. Rob, uh, who's coming in to fill in the gaps? Um, Who are the early-stage investors, and what are they putting together to actually make these sorts of technologies uh, happen? Yep, absolutely. Um, Well, some of this still looks like venture capital because what you're doing is you're backing a a new marketplace or you're backing um, somebody who is is providing new tools to the market that encourage adoption. Um, So a lot of this looks very much like how venture capitalists actually made all that money in the dot-com era by taking increasingly affordable technology and using it to uh, develop brand new ways for people to buy and sell and use things they should want to buy and sell and use. Um, and so some of that it can be done through the traditional venture capital model. But what Jigger's talking about and what he's been a pioneer about in his career is exactly where we see a lot of the opportunity, especially for the types of investors like us who have a lot of flexibility and can invest in, in different structures. So, for instance, um, there is now it, most obvious in downstream solar, um, but you can see it now as in areas like uh, food and ag. Uh, in areas like natural gas vehicles, where there are all these all of these distributed projects, um, and the innovation, which again Jigger and his uh, colleagues were really pioneers around, has been around figuring out how to project finance these distributed assets. Because traditionally, project finance is a very costly thing to work through. Um, not only because it, you know you, you want to take every single bit of risk you can out of uh, what it's going to take to build that coal-fired you know huge power plant. Um, but also because, therefore, you have a whole lot of legal documentation and et cetera, and you end up with hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, worth of legal and diligence fees you know, before you actually fund the actual project itself. Um, and, and you just can't do that, obviously, for these smaller distributed assets. But the innovation has been in figuring out how to create pools of project finance and figure out how they can be applied to these um, you know, networks of distributed assets. And we're, like I said, seeing that most obviously in downstream solar. But we see a lot of opportunity to do that uh, in a whole range of other um, categories as well. What we're able to do, because that still presents a little bit of a chicken and egg to an innovator who who's trying to start up a business like that. Investors like us who have the flexibility are able to come in and say, okay, we'll actually play both roles simultaneously. We'll take a stake in, in your corporation itself as a, as a developer of these types of ideas or as the, as the team that owns the platform through which these things are getting financed. Um, and we're going to provide you with your initial sponsor equity uh, to get your first project pool up and off the ground. Because what we've seen is if you can get a project pool up and off the ground and you start to see the indicative results out of it, then the large banks will look at it and say, hey, great, this is a great place for us to park $50 million, $100 million. Um, and that's what's uh, helped make uh, downstream rooftop solar financing so successful. Great. Well, uh, just one last question before we move on to the next topics. 
I think you're trying to prove that this is an actual trend with this conference coming up. But, you know, is this just a couple of smart guys uh, who are, you know, sounding the need for change in early stage investment? Or is this a real groundswell within the venture capital community of people saying, hey, you know, we didn't really get this right. We need to change strategies. Is this an actual change happening within the industry? Or is it a couple people saying, hey, we should think about this change or we're we're changing our strategy? A lot of the generalists pulled back either by their own choice or because they were told to by their limited partner backers. Um, they are simply, you know, de facto or even in some cases officially uh, getting out of making investments in the clean tech and green tech sector. Um, meanwhile, a lot of the specialist firms have had a really difficult time raising additional capital for their next fund, and so they've been running out the end of their existing funds or, frankly, in some cases, having to close their doors and, and shut down their teams. So there's been a real dearth of investors. What we're marking at this conference is really to highlight those hardy souls who are still doing this and, and have been tackling it innovatively. A lot of times they come out of the family office community, and they haven't had to go out there and raise funds. Um, some of them have been able to successfully raise funds, even though they're, you know, they're increasingly isolated examples. Um, what we're really trying to do is use this conference to mark that a turning point has happened in the sector. It's not fully embraced by the broader venture capital community. It's not a groundswell yet. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do is, is highlight what is happening. Because what is happening is working. Um, what is happening is starting to show some real results. I mean, if you look at, at just this year with Solar City and some of the other great stories that have come about, um, and we're seeing so many great companies growing. I mean, in, in our own portfolio at Black Coral Capital, uh, we saw in aggregate revenues grow 82% year over year, right? I mean, and that's that's a blended average across all of the different companies. Um, at, on the ground, these companies in this sector are generally doing very well now. Um, and now it's time for investors to come back and bring in the capital to promote more growth and, and more innovation. So that's what we're really trying to do. Use the event to, to point to this turning point that's happened in the market. All right. Well, Rob Day, a partner at Black Coral Capital, thanks a lot for coming on. We, we appreciate it. It was good to talk to you. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. Okay. On to our second topic, uh, more troubles for nuclear. This week, Entergy announced it would finally shut down the 620-megawatt Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant in Vernon, Vermont. And, uh, boy, there have been a lot of battles over that plant for many years. Uh, lawmakers and nuclear activists have been fighting Entergy over recommissioning that plant for for a number of years, and the battle really intensified in 2010. Um, and rather than fight the legal battle, it looks like the energy markets, uh, cheap natural gas mostly, put an end to the embattled plant, and it's going to be shut down next year and then slowly decommissioned. So this isn't going to have a major effect on consumers uh, because the plant was a fairly small uh, portion of the New England electricity mix, about 2%. But it is a big deal considering that uh, the fight around the plant over the last few years and the reason for the closure, which is the changing electricity landscape. So what does the gang make of this? Um, Catherine, any thoughts on this? This is actually the fifth nuclear power plant that's been closed or announced to be closed this year. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, and I was so close to Vermont when I was on vacation that I actually called some of my friends up there and asked them about it. And uh, one of my uh, colleagues said, you know, there's a one of the big issues here is that demand uh, has leveled down and is even dropping. Uh, so efficiency 
has efficiency and along with the economic downturn um, is really making a dent on baseload, which I find very interesting and and think that it is a testament, at least in some part, it, it, where Vermont is concerned um, on the stimulus work actually having a pretty big impact. The Vermont Yankee plant was producing electricity for about 50 bucks a megawatt hour and spot prices in New England right now are at just over $35 a megawatt hour. So this plant was really having trouble competing, even though natural gas prices have actually risen due to constrained pipeline capacity in in New England, uh, much faster than the rest of the nation. So even with natural gas prices rising faster than the rest of the country, this nuclear power plant was having trouble competing, which is, uh, I think, which says a lot about the economics of nuclear today. I mean, look, the, the interesting thing about this is that this would never happen to solar. What do you right? mean? I mean, if you, if you, and this is one of the oldest nuclear plants in the United States. It's at its end of life. It is so expensive to fix the pipes and fix the, what's wrong with the plant and figure out how to keep it going for another 10 years that it's better to shut it down than to spend the money to upgrade the plant to, um, to, to run for another 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. With solar, at the end of 25 to 35 to 40 years, when those panels start failing, it'll be, it'll be very cost-effective to just replace all those panels and stick new solar panels on there and amortize it for another 20 years. Yeah, and Jigger, it, it doesn't take 60 years to decommission a solar plant. <laughs> just mind-blowing to me. I mean, look, I am a big fan of nuclear as a concept. But this notion that nuclear power should be, you know, vaulted forward, not only by, you know, like by, you know, folks that I've historically disagreed with, like Bill Gates, but also even Richard Branson is pushing, you know, nuclear power. And I just think that, you know, barring a huge technological breakthrough to allow for nuclear plants the size of your, of your refrigerator, I just don't think these nuclear plants have a lot of positive stuff going on in their future. Uh, I am anyone who knows me knows that I'm not a, an anti-nuclear guy. But when you add up the costs of disposing of waste, you know, it's uh, many billions of dollars uh, to support the disposal of waste and the decommissioning of plants. When you look at water needs associated with keeping these plants cooled, the cost overruns of uh, proposed or new power, new nuclear power plants in development. It doesn't add up very well for nuclear at all, and the elegance of solar, uh, and in both construction and in potential decommissioning, certainly surpasses nuclear. Um, what's interesting is that this recent report that came out looking at uh, subsidies for nuclear power in California, DBL Investors, a venture capital firm based in California, put out a report a couple years ago on. Uh, federal subsidies for nuclear versus federal subsidies for renewables, and they updated uh, that report to look at um, specifically subsidies in California for nuclear and subsidies in California for solar and found that nuclear got about four times the subsidies of solar. Did either of you read this report? What do you think? Yeah, I read the report. I don't like it. You know, I mean, I think that to suggest for a moment that you can compare those subsidies in the way that they did, particularly when nuclear power plants run, you know, it used to be around 80% of the time. Now it's closer to 95% of the time. So their capacity factors are much higher. So when you look at the subsidies per megawatt hour delivered, I don't think we win really on the on, on the subsidy um, 
piece. I, where I think we win is to the extent that California wants to decarbonize uh, its electricity sector in in view of AB 32, I don't think they think nuclear is a viable option to do that. Yeah, but I, I actually think that there are policy issues that are like the Price-Anderson Act. We, we don't have anything like that for solar that has limited liability of making a bad investment. Or in Florida, where they have the QIP, the Construction Work in Process Bill, which actually legislation that basically says that the consumers are going to have to pay for the loss, the losses the nuclear power industry um, found had because they were unable to complete the plant. So the policies that are in place have really jiggered this such that, not no pun intended, so that nuclear <laughs> is in a really different place than solar. I mean, solar has never gotten anything close to what what nuclear has in that regard, in limiting liability of investment. You'll get no argument from me on that. I just don't think that this is a very useful way of like comparing the two. Yeah, I actually agree with Jigger on this. They cherry-picked certain investments for solar and then picked a wide variety of subsidies for nuclear. Um, they looked at the federal ITC. Um, they, you know, they didn't look at net metering. Um, they didn't look at um, R&D tax credits for solar. Uh, other loan guarantee programs. And so there were a lot of investments in solar that they left out over the years, and they factored almost everything into nuclear. So I don't think that this report is terribly accurate. Um, where I think you win the argument against nuclear is the argument that Jigger made before, that you don't have to decommission a plant over decades, that you can repower a solar plant very easily by replacing the solar panels uh, you know, I mentioned the cost of dealing with waste, you know, the, the, the billions of dollars that it, that we spend every year to deal with the waste issue. So I think you went on those arguments, but this report seemed a little cherry-picked to me. But, but I also agree with Catherine, though, by the way, in terms of the politics of this, not necessarily policy, but like when you look at what's going on in Georgia right now with their nuclear plant, every single person in Georgia that is thinking about this rationally hates nuclear right now right i mean they just they poured the cement foundations in georgia incorrectly it's another 250 million dollar cost to rip all that stuff out and start over again aarp is against it the tea party is against it of course the green groups are against it and so my sense is is that one of the reasons why solar has had this unusual coalition of people that have has come together to support it in georgia is in part because of just the debacle that is nuclear there I would love to have a more wide-ranging conversation about nuclear and perhaps bring on a, a nuclear proponent because I think we're all mostly in agreement on this issue, uh, so it would be nice to get another voice in here. But certainly the signs do not look good for the nuclear industry, that's for sure. We saw that uh, EDF, that the big nuclear company in France, is uh, leaving the U.S. nuclear reactor market. And I saw some figures recently that uh, showed in last year – global electricity production from nuclear dropped by 7% and uh, another 4% in 2011. So the decline continues. There are a lot more plants on the chopping block here in the U.S., and, and my guess is that we're going to rehash this conversation when we hear about a number of other plants that are closing down. All right, let's move on to our third topic uh, and round out our show with a little update on what's happening in Washington as the summer comes to a close. So we're not passing any laws for now. 
but people are still talking, talking, talking. Lots of talk from the Obama administration. We heard uh, recent speeches from the EPA administrator, Gina McCarthy, a speech from Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz and Secretary of State John Kerry. And they all basically said the same thing. You know, since Congress isn't acting, we will. Uh, Not a lot new here, but just interesting that this is a real concerted effort by the administration to continue making that argument. Catherine, did you hear anything new coming out of the administration specifically with some of these speeches? Well, what I found interesting was Gina McCarthy did about a four-minute video for her employees, and she basically said, we have a clear responsibility to act on climate change. You know, we're the ones that are going to do this, and I expect all hands to be on deck. So she's doing two things there. One is she's actually telling the people who've been trying to write these rules that she's got their back. And she's also saying to everybody else there who may not be completely bought in, look, this is something we have to do. Everybody is looking to us. This is going to be the climate bill is whatever EPA comes out with. It's not going to be coming out of Congress now. And I think that's been confirmed by Kerry, certainly Secretary Moniz. Um, you know, Moniz talked about a lot of areas that he wants to to work on grid resilience, efficiency, you know, you know, appliance rules. The problem with what's happening uh, other than with EPA and, and in some part affecting EPA as well is that you know, with the sequestration, we're about to hit a perfect storm in September where the next phase of sequestration is going to hit and these just across the board's crazy willy-nilly cuts are just going to occur. Nobody, you know, sequestration wasn't going to happen because everybody thought it was too nutty to happen, but it is happening and nobody is stopping it. The other thing is we're going to have a continuing resolution uh, to keep the government open. Well, so Continuing resolution, we had seven of them in 2011, five in 2012. This will be the third one for this year. Basically, all it says is, all right, we're going to continue to fund the government at at what it was funded at. But that doesn't allow for any new programs to start. It doesn't allow you to shut down old programs that aren't working. It doesn't allow you any flexibility. So it's going to be really hard for DOE and agencies that are really, really would like to do new and different things to be able to do anything because they're so hamstrung by having a continuing resolution, hamstrung certainly by the sequest, you know, sequestration numbers. And then, you know, we're going to hit the debt ceiling. I think that's going to, that's going to be dealt with. But, but really, and this is my whole pitch about if you don't, if you do nothing on policy, that's still a policy and it still has an impact. All right. So I don't want to downplay the importance of these issues. And certainly, like everyone in Washington, I'm following them closely. But this perfect storm, we keep talking about the perfect storm every time this comes around and we find a way around it. We find some sort of compromise at the last minute. And, and it always is. It sounds pretty nutty during negotiations. But uh, you know, his, history, recent history has showed us that we will come to some sort of agreement. Do you think that we are really facing a perfect storm? I mean, I'm, I, I'm somewhat skeptical here. No, no, I actually do think we're facing a perfect storm. I think that when you think about what happened in the last two go arounds, you're right that like it was basically you sort of have to go with the drama and then then somebody wants to be the hero at the end. But right now, I just don't see why the administration would capitulate. They're basically saying it's Congress's Congress's responsibility to pay their bills. You can't use the debt limit. If you wanted to, like, cut budgets, pass a budget and and cut budgets, right? But you can't actually refuse to pay the bills of the people. And, um, and, And the president's saying if you do want cuts, great. I just want tax increases for the rich. And I just don't – I don't see how you actually 
um, square the circle this time around. I, I, I do think that we're going to be in for um, a really interesting fireworks display. Congress has one more week off on recess to play kickball. And then September 9th, we start back and we will see what happens with this perfect storm of sequestration, budget and debt ceiling. It's shaping up to be a pretty wild fall here. But then again, that's nothing new uh, as we've dealt with a a lot of these uh, budgetary and debt ceiling issues. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up the show and uh, tell each other and our listeners something we don't know. Catherine, lay it on me. What do you what do you got that uh, we might not know about? Yeah, sorry, I'm like a pit bull with this uh, policy stuff. So the last day, the last hour before Congress adjourned for recess, um, a congressman, Mike Fitzpatrick, from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, who is a pretty solid Republican, pretty hardline Republican, introduced a bill uh, called the PTC Certainty and Phase-Out Act. And what that does is it, while providing two technology cycles for wind industry uh, to, to ramp down actually phases out the production tax credit for wind. And what I would love to talk about this on another episode in more detail, but what I find fascinating is that this is a member of the Republican Party, and it will be very interesting to see how many other members are able to, to find a safe space to support clean energy. All right, Jigger, how about you? Tell us something we don't know. So the last few weeks, I was in Colorado and at this uh, conference called Our Day, and um, Carl Pope was there, and he basically posited something which I thought was fascinating, where he basically said that the environmentalists have been doing it all wrong. They've been trying to make oil and gasoline and diesel more expensive, when what they really need to do is to make oil cheaper. And then he basically calculated an oil budget, similar to Carbon Tracker, and said that at $55 a barrel... We basically can get almost all the oil that we need and prevent seven of the top 11 carbon bombs that Greenpeace has identified from being developed, including Arctic oil, tar sand oil, the back and shale, um, deep sea drilling in the Gulf. And I just thought it was fascinating the way in which he made his argument. And frankly, T. Boone Pickens was in the audience and a bunch of other folks were there. And it was it was amazing to see the looks on everybody's faces because they realized that what he was saying was actually true. So um, I'm uh, working with Carl to try to figure more out about exactly his approach to this. But it's it's really an, a, an interesting idea, which you don't you don't get a lot. What would that be? I mean, is that just through conservation? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if 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 we dropped oil prices to $55 a barrel, we basically would save so much money around the world that you could pay for cash for clunkers around the world, you could pay for um, you know, like uh, just retrofitting all of the diesel trucks to using natural gas, like the T. Boone Pickens plan, you really could make the justification for paying for all these things very easily once you can establish that you can drive oil prices down to 55. All right. So mine is uh, related to our theme of investment, the top story. And uh, I wanted to try to find something kind of fun. And this story came across my desk. Uh, You might not know how much sea otters are worth on the carbon market, but uh, researchers are trying to figure that out. And uh, an attempt to value environmental services that animals like a sea otter provides. Uh, Researchers at the University of Santa Cruz looked at the amount of carbon sequestered by kelp forests off the Aleutian Islands. And And otters are the main protector of these kelp forests because they eat so many sea urchins, which would kill off the forest if they weren't 
kept in control by the otters. So they looked at how much carbon was sequestered through the kelp and compared it to the European carbon market, and they found that that region was worth worth roughly $400 million. Um, so I'm not an expert on otter or kelp value, but that even seems pretty low to me. And of course, uh, European carbon credits are absurdly low, so that's probably not a big surprise. But I just thought it was a kind of a fun story because it provides another way for us to think about environmental services in a way that uh, you know more capitalistic people can understand. And I've always been fascinated with this concept on how to value nature uh, since I picked up the, the book Natural Capitalism by Paul Hawken, Hunter Lovins, and Amory Lovins. And that was actually one of the reasons why I got into the business reporting on, on clean tech issues. And so this piece of research kind of up, matched up with our topic and was a good example of that. And, uh, and now some of you out there have an idea of how much uh, sea otters give in environmental services off the Aleutian Islands. All right. That marks the end of the show. You can find uh, some of the stories we discussed on the podcast at greentechmedia.com. Just uh, check out the website for links. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Get it automatic updates every time we publish. Uh, there are a lot of ways to do it. You can you can follow us on SoundCloud on the web, uh, or you can download there the SoundCloud mobile app. Uh, it's a really nice app. That's what I use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, and you can use our RSS feed to integrate into whatever podcast player you choose on your computer or mobile device. So those uh, choices are linked on our podcast page at greentechmedia.com. Uh, and of course, don't forget to check out the Next Wave Green Tech Investing Conference, which we talked about at the beginning of the show. And of course, you can find more about that on the events page of greentechmedia.com. Uh, that is all for us. Catherine Hamilton, welcome back. Many thanks for being on. So great to talk to you. Thanks. Absolutely great to be back. And Jigger, happy birthday. A pleasure. Thanks for wonking out with us on your birthday and taking the time. My pleasure. Hope you have a great Labor Day. Indeed. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.